streaming live from Treaty 1 territory in the heartland of the Métis Nation, the place where the great waterways meet and the heart of Turtle Island. I'm excited to host the first Nui Blanche Toronto podcast, where we find ourselves in the territory of Toronto under the treaty of a dish with one spoon and is home to some of the most diverse population in Canada. I'm your host and artistic director, Julie Nagam, and this is my fifth episode, Mark Making. I'm super excited to share stories from artists and critical thinkers, Philip Cote, Dr. Aguero Aguino, El Cid, Katarina Kedekede, and Dr. Serena Kachevsky. This episode will reflect on the importance of transformation of space, how we need to map, mark out, and tag the city through art. Our guests will talk about the importance of pushing against the dominant structures within urban spaces and how public art should be a reflection of the people that actually live there. First, we get to hear the words of Elder Philip Cote, gifting us with knowledge of his artistic practice. Well, as you probably know, Indigenous people have a long history of creating images across the land, starting with the pictographs, petroglyphs, and birch bark scrolls and radon trees and for lots of different reasons. Sometimes it was for celebrating uh, local heroes. They would depict an image that would relate to that person who is being honored. And the same goes for, you know, warning about in those days, they would warn people when war was happening, where the war parties were running and to stay out of their way. So they'd mark up the trees, letting people know to, to be cautious because they could be involved in or a victim of one of these war parties. Or like some of the trees, like in Hyde Park, there's a couple of marker trees that are around 400 to 450 years old, and they're still delivering a message. So doing murals is not a very far step away from those kinds of activities that our ancestors were very social individuals. And that's part of the reason why I do this, because I'm celebrating our culture and celebrating our history and celebrating our heroes through icons that are part of the work that I do. Now, you know, I'm a trained traditional painter from OCAD University from the uh, basic program to the master's program. You know, I can do realism, but do I do realism? Very rarely, even though I love doing it, but I'm not called to do that a lot. And uh, what's important is that indigenous art seems to be very significant in our times right now. And most people hire me to create works that reflect a certain sense of indigeneity. And one of the best ways to reflect that is through woodland style art. It's called the original people and it's called leading to the eighth fire. So why is that important? Well, because that story itself about the eighth fire talks about our indigenous people coming together with these new people, which are this Western people. And our ideas are going to mingle. Our understanding of the way we do things are going to mingle with these new people. You know, it's crazy because it's after 400 years of colonialism that we're going to do it now. Yes, now, because that mingling is going to create the new people of the future. And those people are going to carry on and they're going to bring all of these ideas forward. And our voice and the narrative is going to become part of the mainstream. If it isn't already, it's on its way. <laughs> I couldn't agree with you more, Phil. 
I joke that it will be a full takeover. But seriously, it's so critical that Indigenous voices and visions are part of the Canadian mainstream narrative, especially since we've been silenced for such a long time. I'm excited by all the public art that is grounded in Indigenous ontology, and I just love hearing from Dr. Serena Kachevsky and her take on Winnipeg's public art projects and the importance of mapping out space. Well, you know, I think, again, you talk a lot about mark making, and, and one way that I understand mark making is that those marks invite me in. So there's some kind of symbols in those marks that make me feel like I'm welcome in that space. And I mean, one really good example in Winnipeg is an area that you know very well. It's this place on Treaty 1, which is, I think, there to kind of re-indigenize Winnipeg and invite Indigenous people into that place. So there's all this very powerful art that belongs to everybody there. And people can go and sit and enjoy it uh, and feel welcome there. And um, that is something that, again, it's a lot of hard work and it takes a lot of thought, but we do want to make everybody, I think we want to welcome everybody into these spaces. But specifically, I love it when people just take art in, maybe at a subliminal level and go away with having learned something or even just a memory. And so in that way, I think it's, it is really crucial. I do think that often art, and from graffiti to something more controlled, can make a space more inviting and can make you want to go and see that space. So one of the examples that I have is even is the university that we work in. Um, when it was first built, it had all these glass windows. It was meant to be transparent. But what they did on the inside is they used super graphics. So super graphics are just really large, wayfinding signs in bright colors. But they had an artist organize it. And that was to have people on the outside of the campus look in and see this beautiful space with these fun colors and feel like they could walk into it. So it was sort of a simple intervention, really just using paint. But it was meant to symbolize that you are welcome here. And uh, I think graffiti does that. You know, we have the bike lab at the university as well, and they hired a graffiti artist to paint our bike lab. And it was to make the students feel like that was a space that they belonged to. So I think that if art is, you know, if art is not intimidating and it's engaging, it can invite people in. And it can offer a symbol that allows them to see themselves in that building or just feel that they're able to walk into the door. Well, there was another example that I want to discuss, and it was Eduardo Aquino's collaboration with the Ebb and Flow First Nations. This is a large work of art that's on top of or at the front door of a recreation center in downtown Winnipeg. And so it's a building where kids go in to play soccer, lots of kids in and out all the time. They commissioned um, Eduardo to go up to Ebb and Flow and to work with the elders. It's really a very complex work of art in many ways because there are so many people involved and collaborations can be difficult. Eduardo went up there and the elders, first of all, they showed him a very ancient medicine wheel, which he created on this work of art in a stylized fashion. And then they told him a story about um, the little people and how they um, kind of um, live around the medicine wheel and the power they have. So that story is printed on the work of art in Ojibwe and in English. 
So to me, it was so powerful to see the the language um, in Ojibwe and then to be able to read the story in English, to see a medicine wheel that I didn't know about. It's a very, very old one in uh, Manitoba. Um, and then to have this poem or this story by the elders translated there for me. And it's also beautiful. It's laid out in a way that's really evocative. And I don't know if you know this, but the whole thing is laid out on a Tindallstone base. And that base is actually the very, very first Methodist mission, the school that is the beginning of the University of Winnipeg. So they have, you know, a settler base. They have um, an immigrant to Canada artist. And then they have, you know, very long-standing traditional knowledge from the ebb and flow nation, all woven into one piece that actually is beautiful. And, you know, thousands of kids walk in and out of that building, and I'm sure they're not all taking in all these elements about this work of art, but they're probably taking in something. There's probably a memory there. There's probably a little um, kind of subliminal movement there. Some of them will stop and read the poem. And that, to me, is successful public art. Well, can I think about some international models for you? So, you know, one of the things about public art, I just mentioned social impact. I mentioned, you know, the complexity and the layers of um, trans, transmuting different, different kinds of knowledge. You know, going back to this place again, that's, there's a lot of difficult history that's talked about in that um, public art park. Um, including your work, Electric Currents, which reminded me about the ease with which I get my electricity is on the backs of First Nations and Métis people. It's something I I didn't really think about until I saw that. And even Rebecca Belmore's, you know, pillar of rusted school chairs, it tells me a little bit of difficult history in a visual way that penetrates deeper and, and allows me to take it in without being overwhelmed. So those are more socially um, impactful, more political works. Thanks, Serena, for giving us such a vivid image of downtown Winnipeg and the work that exists at the University of Winnipeg. We still have so much work to continue to do, but we're really getting somewhere. One of the projects that is close to my heart is the warming huts on the majestic Red and Assiniboine rivers that mark a meeting place for over thousands of years. Aguardo reflects on the process of creating these works in collaboration with the university students and another project with Inuit artists for a public artwork in Iqaluit. They are different kind of public art circumstances or public space circumstances, right? The warming hut happens every winter in Winnipeg, the frozen ice, frozen surface of the river, and where there is the inhabitation by structures, architecture structures and spaces that make comments about the winter sometimes and about the, the trail, right? The, the ice trail of uh, Assiniboine and Red Rivers. Uh, that those processes come straight from a collaboration. In this case, in the case of the warming huts, is a full collaboration with students from the Faculty of Architecture. And in the same way, I never really start or get into the process uh, knowing what we are going to do. Even though it's a very fast-paced project, usually it takes two weeks for us to conceive, design, and produce, build the actual structure, right? Everything starts from the dialogue and the conversation with students. 
And sometimes we collaborate with artists, with research institutes. We have collaborated with the city of Winnipeg before. So sometimes, or most of the time, we have collaborators. And two years ago, actually, we were collaborating with the studio of Anish Kapoor in London, the, the British East Indian uh, sculpture. And that also generated a kind of conversation because the warming hut was supposed to serve as a pavilion to receive Anish Kapoor's work. So all the directives were actually generated by Kapoor's work and the students' response to that and how they emotionally and conceptually reacted to that. So in, in collaboration with the studio, we kind of gradually and slowly and very carefully articulate a space that would be conceived as ideal to house his work but at the same time being a very engaging space to the ice skaters or ice walkers on the river as a moment of reflection in a way. So it serves the same time as a kind of a temporary art gallery, but also as a kind of a meditative space. And in relationship to the Kaluit Airport public art, I was invited initially to be one of the artists for the airport and also to be a commissioner for the airport and associate curator and designer of the exhibition it was a fairly substantial project, very complex in terms of the management. But in my first trips to Iqaluit, it was obvious to me, it became obvious to me that the project should not be taken in the traditional way usually public art is taken. For example, I was invited to be one of the artists, but I kind of step back myself from the opportunity and instead I kind of redefined my role in the process. So instead of being a public artist proposing a project, I became more like a translator, a facilitator from the community of Nunavut to find their best, absolutely best representation in that significant public space. The airport is considered to be the biggest, definitely the biggest and most welcoming public space in Kaluit as well. So it's not only the airport, but there is a huge public area that actually receives um, the community for events, for gatherings, for just hangouts. So the idea for the airport was to tap into the Inuit culture and more particularly the art produced in Nunavut to find the best representations in the airport. And so we had the opportunity to commission some new artworks, a new sculpture, and four murals will be, were created in the most monumental space of the airport. And in total, at the end, there were 72 Inuit artworks on display, which became this kind of pop-up Inuit art gallery the biggest at the time, the biggest collection of Winwit Gallery in exhibition in the world. And of course, thanks will be sold, this will be now the role of the Inuit Art Center in Winnipeg with the Winnipeg Art Gallery. The projects that Aguardo is working on are so exciting. As we get to open up the new Inuit space, Hamayak, of the Winnipeg Art Gallery, which has been named Bindigan Bawasigan, and the Indigenous Circle and Language Keepers, we got to name 14 spaces in seven different Indigenous languages, which I have to admit was a personal highlight. 
Language is such a grounding foundation within so many places. And as we travel across to the other side of the planet to reflect on the artistic projects of El Cid, where he explains the importance of language and using Arabic calligraphy in his practice. I use my art, I mean, I use Arabic calligraphy as my main medium, my art, and I paint and sculpt, you know, artwork, usually large-scale mural and big uh, sculpture in the public space, you know. It all started with a quest of identity. Me, born, born and raised in France from Tunisian parents, I felt I needed to, uh, I felt I was lost, you know, in between two identities, the French one and the Tunisian one. And I, I felt I needed to choose actually between being French or being Tunisian. I run into my Arabic roots, I learn how to read and write, and then and the more I was growing into this art of calligraphy, the more I discovered, uh, I realized that I wouldn't be able to do what I do if I wasn't born in France, you know, so Arabic calligraphy allowed me to reconcile my two identities. So at the beginning, it was just a quest of that identity. Then the more I was traveling to paint my art, you know, I realized that not just claiming my Arabic identity, I felt that art was, um, was actually a an amazing pretext to meet people, an amazing pretext to live amazing human experience, and also a tool, you know, to highlight communities and sometimes, you know, like uh, talk about a cause that is close to my heart. And today I say, I, for example, Arabic calligraphy, today is just a, it's just a tool. I mean, it's not, it's the background, you know, for all those amazing human experience that I've lived, you know, and I use it, you know, as a tool to build bridges, you know, between people, culture, and generation, and that's how, how I, I look at my art now. What is important to, in my art is the fact that I, I write messages, you know, it means that I write messages relevant to the place where I'm painting, but messages that have a universal dimension, so anybody around the world can relate to it. And those messages, you know, sometimes people will think this is just uh, Arabic uh, poetry, but what I do, I translate poem from the place where I'm painting. For example, when I was in Toronto and I did this installation during Nuit Blanche in 2018, the art piece was called uh, Mirrors of Babel. And I used uh, a poem from a Canadian and Mohawk poet called Emily Pauline Johnson that I translated from English to Arabic. And I built a tower out of out of her words. So that's, that's how I look at my work today. And I keep, you know, using it as a, as a tool, like I said, to to highlight now communities and cause that are close to my heart. The kind of work that LC creates is breathtaking and so grounded in his own quest to explore his voice and working towards a larger project of connecting humanity through the power of art. Nuit Blanche is always pushing the boundaries of public art and that sense of awe. One of my faves in Nuit in Your Neighborhood was Katarina's work. I was just blown away with the sense of design that was created in the augmented architecture and Maori knowledge systems. Kia ora. So essentially the work that I've created for Nui Blanche, it's actually been a progression over the last two decades, to be quite honest. And that's about me reclaiming, reclaiming my space my knowledge, my traditional knowledge, my ancestral knowledge, and relearning a lot of our whakapapa, our genealogical ties. And from that knowledge base, all of this creative expression, this creative explosion, I suppose, has come from and drawn from that. So it's a lot of traditional art and design concepts and foundations, and I've kind of fused that with 
these modern design symbolism and really my objective for that was to illuminate the interpretation of that traditional knowledge and, and that creative process. Concept of conditioning of the mind, I, I suppose I could say, to, to learn, to retain, to express and to create. We have a concept of wānanga, whare wānanga, where it's a space of learning where we come together. And, and traditionally, it wasn't a written space of learning other than the visual art, but it was more of repetitive, corded or repetitive chanting and chanting of our genealogies and our stories, our traditional stories. So that's where a lot of the interpretation of the repetitiveness of my designs has come from. Yeah, I'd love to work within the line form, the line art, being a graphic designer. And I draw those narratives from these concepts of, what would I say, um, genealogical ties and their terminology of, of genealogy and it's linking generations and generations of families. We have different traditional terms for those. For me, that was a way of mapping who I am my links, my lineage to my ancestors and bringing that forth into creative space. And um, I think we started with still, some still designs and then animated and then again being introduced to this AR work just totally exploded and my totally exposed on just off the words I've just got the link and I just looked at it and I just went, oh my god, this is crazy. That just blew my mind. I'm just lost for words. I, I was running around the house showing everybody everyone was thought I was crazy. I sent the link up, you know, when the <laughs> when the launch came and everyone was like, Oh my god and then they, you look around the phone, you you move around your house and you look around and it's just crazy. And then even to hear the soundscape of the chanting, the more tears there in the background, everyone just went, wow, I know it's crazy and I'm still blown away from it. It's just amazing the, the potential, this navigational, you know, this imagination we have we can use as a compass to just go anywhere. It's fantastic. It was, it was all crazy and everyone said, look, I've got your artwork moving around in my kitchen and now it's on the stove and, you know, now it's in the bath. <laughs> and we're like, oh, okay, how was that? How was that having, you know, that's another discussion too. It's like, oh, okay, is that, a, you know, the appropriate place for art? But then, you know, that's the whole thing. We can bring it with us wherever we are. And, and that's actually another important discussion that some of us would have. Oh, how does this work then if, you know, how the, the treatment of the art, you know, oh yeah, it's a lot of good conversations that need to happen, but at the same time, very exciting. And it is important. The last, especially locally here where we're living in Gisborne, we're seeing a very big reclamation of our spaces and indigenising of our spaces and our, our traditional tribal stories. And it is about standing and saying, no, we are here, this is our space, this is our land, and these are our ancestor stories. Katarina's stories are connected to our stories here on Turtle Island, as we share many colonial histories in both places, how we map out space as integral to our relationship to land, and each territory has its own localized histories, 
as Phil describes the importance of specific locations here in Toronto and the stories that need to be told through his visual art practice. There's all kinds of projects now. I think they're all important because they're all at uh, really unique locations that talk about that specific history connected with those locations, like the, the Humber River. I did a project with Pan Am Path a few years ago, and I did 10 murals down there. And that was a collaboration with Quest and Jarus, who are two well-known street artists. And we created these 10 murals. They did all the background work, and I did the main the main piece of the work, which is the medallion of knowledge. And it was a small and brief representation of the Anishinaabe creation story. So starting from the beginning of the universe up until we have these times where there is significant, what we call activism, indigenous activism happening across the land. So that was part of the message. So, you know, we talk about our creation story and stuff like that. And sometimes it's in, um, as if it's in the past still, but no. What's important about that is that we are actually forming the other end of that creation story. We are still in the process of the creation story. We, it's still unfolding and we are part of it now. That's something to think about in terms of if you're an Indigenous person, you should realize that our story is unfolding and you are in it. That's something, you know, to think about. And I ask that all the young people, all the artists out there, start thinking about that when they're thinking about telling stories through their images. Think about where we come from. Think about how important that story is, that we were denied that story because of colonialism for so long. Not until 1960 were we really allowed to talk about it. And that's when we, our culture and everything became uh, legal again. It was outlawed that we should speak about our history and culture and practice our culture until 1960. So the revolution happened at that point when all these young Indigenous activists came out and they started wanting to voice all the injustices that have happened to the Indigenous people over the last four or five hundred years here. And that revolution spawned all these young people who are like my age now, who were inspired by that revolution and realize that the most important thing for us to do is to share our narrative. And for me as an artist, sharing narrative about a more accurate representation of history is what's needed in this society and in this culture. Even our own people, some of them, you know, aren't aware of all these details and all this amazing history. And that's why anybody who, you know, rises up to a certain point to collecting knowledge should be put in a position to share that knowledge so other people can hear about these stories. So for me as an artist, I'm in this place that I can share these stories and that's the thing I want to do. And I guess the other location that is really important to me is Jarvis and Dundas. There's a complex there it's called Center Court Condos. And it's just facing the, the backside of it's facing the, um, there's a great grand hotel. So I have a huge mural there. It stands five stories in the air. And it's 120 feet long, and it's 37 feet high, and it's uh, called The First Family. So, it again, it's about our story, the beginning of our story. It's about the first man and woman arriving on the land here. And all the animals are kind of surrounding them, because Indigenous people have had this long relationship of understanding with nature. And nature is part of our culture. And the wisdom that Indigenous people have comes from the land and the animals. You know, they call that an indigenous pedagogy. So land-based pedagogy is the main 
idea that a lot of our knowledge is directly linked to the land, and that's something important. And that's something that uh, sometimes growing up in the city that you become detached from. So I put these stories up there just as a reminder that we should think about how we are connected to the land and that if we can't have that where we live in the city, that we should always make these travels out to the countryside to reconnect with that land again. Because the land is still in a relationship with us, and we haven't stopped being in that relationship with the land. And I think a lot of people, even if they're non-Indigenous, when they see that work up there, they're inspired by it. And it's the colors, and everybody knows that it's an Indigenous couple they're looking at. You can see that there's love between these two. And you can see that the animals feel the same about them, that there's this love and this family connection. I think that's the kind of thing that inspires a lot of people. And I hope to inspire our community, our young artists in our community to to get out there and continue telling our story on and on and on, because we're a big part of the future. At least that's what the prophecies say, that we are part of that future. We're not going to be eliminated. We're not going to, our stories is going to be heard. Yeah, I guess the thing about the, the cityscape here is, you know, that energy, it permeates through even the concrete and everything that's here. And I'm going to prove it to you that even these settlers, they're influenced by this energy coming off the land too, just like we, all our ancestors were for thousands of years. But indigenous people, we have a much longer relationship with this land, and that land does hear us. You know, I connect with that pretty much almost every day. I go to Hyde Park for my walks every day. I just connect with the land that way and I think about things. Because, you know, I've been practicing my culture for a long time, since 1977. You know, I've, I've learned, the first thing I learned to do was to smudge. And I didn't know where that would take me. But it took me to a Sundance. It took me to being a sweat lodge leader. I'm a pipe carrier. I belong to Eagle Society and False Faith Society. So that connection, practicing the culture, is a really important thing for Indigenous people to do and to remember that we're a part of that. That part of that ritual is about connecting to the land because we are connected to a series of cycles and the cycles are still happening. They haven't stopped. It reminds us of our true identity and our true identity as an Indigenous person is to be connected with this long history of this relationship to the land. This long history with the land is communicated in collaboration. And as Aguardo stresses, the importance of listening and giving up on the individual artist control and just being open to working in new and exciting ways. So they, people really want to be affirmatively pictured or validated, right? So therefore, what I think public arts do is to provide a sense of being referential community-basic site-specificity that people will embrace. So I don't really, I never really practice in terms of public arts like a traditional artist that practices alone in the studio, comes up with their ideas and presents those ideas into the public realm. Uh, usually my public art work uh, starts on the place, on the history of the place, starts on a dialogue with the people that actually have some participation in that urban space. And that's how the art is generated. So every time I work with a public art project, 
I don't really know where I'm starting from because it doesn't come from a preconception or a premise that I have in the studio. I actually start by listening and by looking at listening to the place, listening to the site and the people that are connected to the site. Don't stop. Sites for connection and exploration are at the core of public art, which is about engaging people within the knowledge of the place that they live. And at the same time, we need public art to be reflective and engaging from a creative and aesthetic standpoint. Serena gives us some insight into her last trip to Chicago. You know, if my kids can enjoy art, then for me, it's really, it's a big bonus. So there's a few, and one is um, Anish Kapoor's really gorgeous cloud gate in Chicago. It's a huge, monumental, bean-shaped work. Apparently, it's a technical wonder because it's seamless. It's a reflective surface that's completely seamless, and that was very hard to do. And it's now actually a place that everyone goes in Chicago to have uh, to take a selfie. It's like, like a, a touristic draw. And I don't think this makes it less profound. You know, when I was there in Chicago, right, right before um, the pandemic lockdown, I had to like elbow my way in through hundreds of people to get up to take my selfie because I was not going to miss that. Basically, it's a huge shell, cell, and that cell is actually dividing. I think it reflects mitosis. And mitosis is the very basic essence of all life, for sure on this planet, but maybe in the cosmos. And you stand in front of this large cell that's dividing, and you see yourself, and you see a park, and then you see this thriving metropolis. And you can't help but think about your place in nature, in culture, I would even say the universe. And again, you know, probably many people that were standing there beside me were not thinking about cell mitosis, but there's, the, you know, they were moved by the beauty of it, by the aesthetics of it. Um, maybe by the technical side of it, but they certainly will have this memory of it. And one of my earliest memories actually ever of art is sitting in the Yorkdale Mall in Toronto. And this is after we had just come to Canada and we would go sometimes to Yorkdale. It was really far away. So it was sort of a big deal. We had to drive there and it was always on a weekend and we do like hours of shopping. And I so clearly remember taking a break with my parents and sitting in this oval fountain. So it was kind of quiet there. It was a little bit cooler. My younger brothers would run around on the rim. Actually, one of them fell into the fountain once. And there were these flying figures overhead. And of course, you know, I didn't know it was a work of art. I didn't know it was a work of art commissioned in 1964, part of the 1% rule. I didn't know any of that. But I knew it was this beautiful place to sit and just to relax and to cool off to renew myself and and the whole family you know we all did that with other people and it was only later on when I had this memory like it was permanently in my brain and then years later when I was an art historian I looked it up and sure enough it was a commissioned work of art for the Yorkdale Mall in 1974 part of that 1% rule by a respected Toronto artist so I think you know this showed me that it, it penetrated in my mind somewhere as a place of beauty and respite even though I didn't know all the other things. And that's one of the things I love about public art is that maybe can create memories um, and good memories, or maybe it's an experience with art, even though you barely understood you were dealing with art. I mean, there's some pieces, but there is nothing like those two pieces in terms of impact. And actually, I think that's a total lost opportunity to introduce people to art. 
Each experience I have with public art changes, as each place I travel to tells their own stories, which impacts each person differently. Katerina expands on her connections and exchanges of knowledge to Indigenous stories of place. We need to be aware and we need to learn more about who we are and the places that we walk, especially when they're not our spaces or they belong to other tribal areas. We need to have the respect to know and learn about the areas that are the mana sending other people of the area. It is like when we travel internationally to learn and have the respect for the for other Indigenous people and their traditions and stories. We, we should be learning more about other cultures as well as our own. It's very important that we connect our spaces with our identity. I do feel very fortunate to know where I come from, my whakapapa, my ancestral ties, and I still have a lot to learn in saying that, yeah. Definitely, the important, again, is for me, retaining the ancestral ties to that land, to that space. For those, not only those who come into the space, but for us who, who live here, live in our papakaina, our ancestral homes, who always remind us and, and remind us that this is our land, because sometimes we get lost in what's happening out there and, yeah. I was just absolutely blown away with the new blogs, the, the AR work, all of the artists, the whole festival. I've met this first time I've ever been a part of something like that. And I just want to thank you for that opportunity. It's fantastic to be amongst the, the platform of, of artists and the creativity. And yeah, just getting all these ideas. I'm just, I'm ready to do it again. <laughs> I am just so jacked that you loved your AR work for Nui as much as I did. I also just get excited about the potential of where we could continue to push the boundaries of this medium. I'm so glad you're game for it. I just think about the power of art to be placed in any location, just as the work of El Cid, who engages the community and history of each place to create a new narrative of connection that brings to light issues we are currently facing in our world today. Yeah, um, there's one project I did actually a few years ago inside the neighborhood of the Cairo garbage collector in Egypt. So I created the nanomorphic piece, a piece that actually extends in more than 52 buildings. So you have to go on the, on the top of a mountain to look at, uh, to see the piece, you know, in this uh, global, like in a global, I mean, to have the full view. And I wanted to raise the topic of perception. I wanted to, to highlight this community and not because they were in Egypt, but, I mean, it's because those people have developed the most powerful recycling system of the world. You know, they, they collect the garbage of Cairo, bring it to the neighborhood, and actually today they recycle more than 80% of what they collect. And there's no one around the world actually that can, that can do what, they, what they're capable of doing. And because they're associated with trash, you know, they're marginalized, marginalized and segregated. And so the point of the project was to uh, highlight this community and... Uh, and, you know, use this art as a pretext, but also as a metaphor, you know, because if you wanted to see the full art piece, you needed to stand in a certain vantage point. And the idea was like, if sometimes you want to, you want to look at somebody from who they are and what they are really, you sometimes need to switch, you know, your perception and change your, your angle of view. And, uh, and on this project, I used actually uh, a quote from a Coptic bishop who lived in the fourth century in Alexandria in Egypt. And he said, 
anyone who wants to see the sunlight clearly need to wipe his eyes first, you know. And this is uh, this is always written in this neighborhood. And it was interesting how everybody wants to define, you know, like the role of public art. Like it has to be made only one way. And you know, there is people who do their art for a purpose. Like some of them, they say, I just want to paint in the street. There's nothing beyond that. Me, sometimes, you know, like you feel that you you need to give yourself a mission. And I think, you know, like uh, it's important not to put everybody in boxes, you know, like it's important to allow, you know, people to express themselves the way they want and for the purpose they want as well, you know. And uh, I would never, you know, say like, oh, what you do is not street art or what you do is not public art or you're not a graffiti artist. And I think, I don't know, that's that's a topic that we love to explore, like why people want absolutely to define themselves and want to define others, you know, not themselves, but it's always for you always try to define somebody else. But uh, people, they usually have a lot of difficulty to define themselves, which is funny. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And this is, uh, you know, I think art is about emotion, it's uh, what brings back our humanity. And, you know, you cannot expect from people to feel the same way towards something, you know what I mean? And that's why, you know, it's weird to say like, oh, like you should love this. Why you should love it? So you should like this. Or this is not, this is not art or this is not, you know, and this is, this is the way I look at it. You know, it's, I don't know. I think we should be more open, open to, to differences, I would say. So well said. Hmm. So I guess I'll leave it there then. Thanks so much for listening. I would love to say Chimigwich, Marcy, and thank you to all the people that make this podcast possible. And tune in again for Nui's Belonging to Place. Hello.